Today's sermon text can be found in Ecclesiastes 8, verses 1 through 17. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place. And were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also was vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is I said that this also is vanity, and I commend, I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we ask now that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts to your wisdom. Most of all, we pray that you would give us even a small glimpse of the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. One of the things that causes us to question what we believe is when we look out in the world and see grave and heinous injustices. This is true for both Christians and non-Christians. We see crimes go unpunished, sometimes on a, a mass scale. And we instinctively ask, how could God let this happen? If He's good, and if He's sovereign over all things, like we've sung this morning, how come the wicked never seem to get what they deserve? Currently, to take just one example, the Chinese government is continuing to, to oppress an entire people group, the Uyghurs. They're not the only ones in that country. Yet their president just got reelected for a third term. North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un continues to enslave mass numbers of his people for political and religious reasons. Yet he's still in power. If we had the time, we could spend all day listing out these kinds of things. Rulers who do evil and seem to get off scot-free. And that's just the international level. We could come to our own country and find similar things, even if it's not just political rulers. Or we could look at our own community, just, right, if you want to really get depressed, turn on the local news at night. Spend a few minutes seeing the crimes just from one day. Maybe you've seen this play out on a personal level. Right? We all have to some degree. Right? Maybe, maybe it's the man who abandons his wife and kids and yet he seems to prosper financially while she and the kids just struggle to pay rent. Right? We might not say it out loud, but deep down we struggle with the fact that life doesn't seem fair. We can't seem to make sense of it. And these are the kinds of struggles that our text this morning is dealing with. How do you continue trusting God in a world that seems unfair? This is actually one of the benefits to reading a book like Ecclesiastes. Is it allows us to ask questions that keep us up at night. It's not always the easiest book to read. Maybe you've noticed that over the past weeks. But it asks the questions that we would ask off the record. Even though we may not get all our questions answered in a book like this, this book does something better than give us the answers. It helps us to cast ourselves on the one who does know all the answers. So with that in mind, I want us to consider this morning Ecclesiastes 8 under two general headings here. Two general headings. First, 
I want us to consider what it means to live wisely under absolute authority or power. What it means to live wisely under absolute power. In the first nine verses of this chapter, these are not the easiest to to understand if you're just reading it for the first time or even the tenth time. Maybe you noticed that when it was being read. But I think it's helpful here for us to understand the setting. This is likely a counselor to the king in ancient Israel. That's likely what this was originally intended for. So someone who serves closely with the king. Notice in verse 2, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Okay, the average person doesn't get an audience with the king. Right, and keep in mind, this is not a democracy. Right, we're used, if we don't like uh, political rulers, we can get on Facebook, we can say whatever we want to to friends or even publicly. Right, we can go to the polls, vote them out. Well, that's not the case here. It's actually not the case through most of human history and in many places around the world today. The king in this passage doesn't answer to any earthly powers. Look at verse 4. The word of the king is supreme. Who may say to him, what are you doing? Right, whatever he says goes. There's nothing you can do about it. Right? When sinful people have that kind of power, it typically doesn't go well. We've all heard the saying, absolute power does what? It corrupts absolutely. That's generally true to our experience. What do you do in a situation like that? Is it possible to serve God under this kind of power and authority? Okay, it would be tempting I would be tempted to do this if I was his counselor, just to resign and get out of town. But notice in verse 3, he says, don't be hasty to leave the king's presence. And I think he's saying, hey, you may do some good here. Don't be so quick to leave. You might get to speak up on behalf of truth and justice. Don't forfeit that opportunity. Verses 5 and 6 even talk about there's a, there's a time and a way that wisdom can speak into absolute power. Do you notice that? A time and a season? Reminded of chapter 3 when we read those familiar words, there's a time and season for everything. And it even says a time to keep silence and a time to speak. And it's a reminder here to this counselor, wisdom doesn't take a one-size-fits-all Approach that uses discernment doesn't mean the decision is always easy, but the wise person knows that there are some battles worth fighting. And I think that's what it means, too, in verse three. Again, these are these are not the easiest verses to interpret here. But when he says, don't take your stand in an evil cause, that word evil can also just mean a bad cause. Right. If it's not working, don't do it. Right? This is not a call to compromise truth. It's a call to be discerning about what really matters. There are some hills that aren't worth dying on. Right? Being faithful to God takes courage. But it doesn't mean throwing your brains out. Your discernment may allow you to do some good. That's what Solomon, the preacher here, is advising this counselor about. Okay, so you, you don't have to leave the king's Presence. You don't have to stop advising him. 
Your wisdom may, may help you discern when to say something and when to keep silent. But at the same time, he also says, don't be naive here. Wisdom also has its limits. In fact, in verses 7 through 8, it reminds us there are no guarantees when it comes to our physical safety. Okay, so there's a real tension here. On the one hand, don't needlessly provoke the king if he has absolute power and authority. If it's a losing cause that's not essential to the truth, you don't always have to champion it. On the other hand... Don't presume that your wisdom and discernment are always going to save your skin. Okay, this makes for some difficult decisions, right? And these are not just difficult decisions for an advisor in ancient Israel. I believe there's a a word here for us today, particularly as we think about what it looks like to live under authority. For Christians around the world, living under absolute authority is a reality this day. I don't know if you've followed any of the the protests right now going on in the country of Iran. These are following the death of a 22-year-old woman who was detained and beaten and died for not wearing the proper headgear. And the people in Iran have taken to the streets in mass, unprecedented numbers, men and women, in some cases, flaunting it before the government because they're fed up with it. Reports are there's been nothing like this since 1979 and the revolution. But I read one article this week that noted that Christians are in a bit of a dilemma here. There's one group that says we need to join in the protests. We don't need to be violent. We don't need to call for vengeance against anybody, but we need to help support the people of Iran. There's another group of Christians that says we don't we don't need to join in this. Romans 13, 1 says to submit to the governing authorities. We need to trust the Lord to bring about change. My point in highlighting this story is not actually to advocate for either side. These are difficult questions. My point is to say that Ecclesiastes 8 has something to say to Christians living in the 21st century. It has something to say to us. There's wisdom and discernment needed. Okay, sometimes there are no easy answers. And this goes beyond government and politics. Could apply to your work, the way you relate to coworkers, to your boss, to unbelievers who are antagonistic to your faith. Right? Living as a Christian in a sinful and broken and unjust world requires discernment. And our passage reminds us, even when we're faithful, We don't know how things will turn out. Look at verse 8. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Okay, we like to think we're in control. If we just make the right decisions about work and health and finances, we feel a sense of security. Surely nothing will go wrong for us. Just takes a little wisdom. But all it takes is an unforeseen medical diagnosis, a car wreck, an unexpected phone call, and our illusions are shattered. Ecclesiastes reminds us over and over, I hope you've seen that in chapters past, that we are not in control. 
And not even earthly kings with absolute power have control over us. The message of Ecclesiastes as a, as a whole is that only God has control over life and death. And we don't always know his purposes. You can do all the right things and still end up suffering for it. The author here is going to have more to say about that, but we should just pause and say this should prevent us from trying to save our skin by compromising on the truth. Because sin won't actually save you in the end. Again, look at the end of verse 8. There's no discharge from war. Okay, He may even mean that metaphorically. You can't get out of this. Wickedness is not going to deliver those who are given to it. Wickedness won't save us because we're finally accountable to God, not to the king. Right? We submit to earthly rulers, but ultimately we serve a heavenly ruler. And only he knows what will happen to us. And so we might, we might sum up this entire first section, verses 1 through 9, this way. Wisdom teaches us to be discerning. But it can't guarantee that things will always go well for us. Wisdom teaches us to be discerning in difficult situations. Okay, we don't have to flee or step back. But it doesn't guarantee that things will always go well. Sometimes we're going to have the opportunity to speak truth to power. Other times we will suffer unjustly for what we say. Right? And this is closely related to the second main section of our text. Okay, If that's living wisely under absolute power and authority, the second part of our text talks about living wisely amid earthly injustice. Living wisely amid earthly injustice. In the remainder of this chapter, the preacher here, Solomon, observes earthly injustice and he says that it makes life seem vain or futile. He can't figure it out. Look at verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place. He's talking about the temple there. And were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. So instead of being punished or even shamed, the preacher sees the wicked celebrated in the very place where they carried out their wickedness. Verse 14, he observes something similar. He says, there's a vanity that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. He looks out at the world and he says, people seem to get the exact opposite of what they deserve. The righteous suffer while the wicked seem to be living their best life now. How can this be? I mean, if if we're honest, sometimes this can make it feel pointless to obey God and to struggle, right, to follow his word. If righteousness doesn't benefit us in the end, if we end up just like the wicked, then why put forth the effort? Deep down, we can think that, can't we? When life gets difficult, why go through all this? Just live how you want to do whatever it takes to get by and to get ahead in the world. 
You ever feel like that? You're trying to live faithfully as a Christian. You sacrifice your time, your money, you give of yourself, you try and die to your sinful desires. And in the end, sometimes it just seems like life gets harder and harder. Right? Maybe you've even been tempted to, to give up on following Jesus because of this. Thankfully, the book of Ecclesiastes doesn't leave us in despair when it comes to these issues, when it comes to earthly injustice. Based on the rest of this chapter, I believe the preacher here gives us at least three ways to live wisely amid this earthly injustice. Okay, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning thinking about three ways in these verses, 10 through 17, that we can respond to what the preacher just described here, a world where the wicked sometimes seem to prosper and the righteous suffer. How do, how do you live wisely in a world that just seems unjust? Number one, I think he would remind us to remain faithful in light of God's final judgment. Remain faithful in light of God's final judgment. One of the most difficult things about doing this, about walking wisely in a fallen world, is that our eyes and ears can be deceiving. Okay, when we look around, sin doesn't seem to be that big a deal for most people. The wicked are often praised. Their polling numbers are even high. But how can this be? How can God let them get away with this? How do they go in and out of the holy place? And God doesn't just strike them down. How are they getting away with this? If God's word is really true, why does sin often lead to success for people? This can be disorienting, especially when people who otherwise seem reasonable or even more intelligent than us seem to approve of sin. How can sin be taken so lightly? This is where the preacher helps us here. Notice I said, we remain faithful in light of God's future judgment. Look at verse 11. He helps us understand why, why people don't see this. He says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. People are already looking for excuses to sin. And when they see sin and it doesn't get punished... It just emboldens them, right? It's like children who walk in with a, a really lax substitute teacher who doesn't call anyone out, right? The rest of the class just watches and they say, hey, she obviously doesn't care. He doesn't care if we throw airplanes, right? Everybody can do it. There's no consequences for it. We do that as adults on a bigger scale. There's not an immediate consequence for sin. People don't take it seriously. You can see this play out in our own day. Maybe you've noticed this in a high-profile court case. Right? You followed it on the news. There is some terrible crime. Right? They find the person. Right? Everybody's up in arms, but they find the person. You think, finally, they're going to get what they deserve. Right? But it takes weeks and months for it to go to court. And by the time the appeals are done, we're maybe a year or two years or three years down the road. 
By the time there's a, a sentencing, you forgot what the person even did in the first place. Right? We totally disconnect the, the sin from the punishment. Right? It ceases to be a warning. And that's a small picture of what it's like with all sin. When the wicked aren't punished immediately, people assume that no judgment is coming. And again, this is not just non-Christians who struggle with this. Think about this. When you read your Bible and you come upon a story where God acts immediately to judge sin, what's your reaction? When he strikes someone down right there, right? our immediate reaction is to think, boy, that was harsh. God must have been in a really bad mood that day. There's tons of examples of this throughout Scripture. Just think, I was thinking through these. Just think of Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 5. They lie about the offering and what happens? What happens? You've read it, right? God strikes them down right there. On the spot. There's no waiting period here. He strikes them down. We think, how harsh But what we're really getting here is a look at what every sin deserves. The amazing thing is not that this couple was struck down for their sin. The amazing thing is that the rest of the church was able to live with all of their remaining sin. And God just let it go on. And he lets the wicked go on. We should be amazed that every sin doesn't get this. How many sins did it take for Adam to get kicked out of the garden? One. Fellowship with God forever gone right there unless God intervenes in grace. Because judgment is delayed, we assume it's not coming. But the preacher here in Ecclesiastes is going to remind us that this is a grave mistake. Just because we don't observe justice in the here and now doesn't mean it won't come. Those who are truly wise live in light of the final judgment. We live, to use the words of the Apostle Paul, by faith and not by sight. Okay, we've been looking at this in adult core training in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says he always lives to please the Lord... And there's a reason why he says, because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. People are slandering Paul. They are belittling him. And in second Corinthians, he says, I don't really care. The world is not my judge. I've got to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's a final judgment coming. That's what I'm living for. We're all going to give an account for what we've done, whether good or evil. And our, the preacher in our passage knows this is true. Even though we don't see sin immediately. Look at verses 12 and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. Right? Though things seem to be going well for him or for her. Looks like they're winning. But he says, yet I know. I know. I don't see it, but I know That it will be well with those who fear God. Because they fear before Him. 
Right? It may seem like those who are ignoring or rejecting God are living the good life, but those who fear God are the ones who will prosper in the end. Okay, this idea of fearing God keeps coming up throughout Ecclesiastes. You've probably heard it in previous sermons, and it'll come up again and again in later chapters. The wise person is the one who fears God, who trusts God, who stands in awe of God. Who commits his or her entire life to God and his promises. That's what it means to fear God. And those who truly fear him know that sin doesn't pay off in the end. Regardless of what it looks like right now. God's judgment is coming. He affirms this. Verse 13. It will not be well with the wicked. I see them prospering now. Right? And I see that they're being praised in the city. Everything looks great for them. But I know, based on God's word, it will not go well for them in the end. The wise person doesn't fear or envy the wicked because he knows what the end will be. I couldn't help but think here of the story of Hans and Sophie Scholl. don't know if you've heard their Story. These are two German university students. A movie was made about them. A brother and a sister who spoke up in the face of Nazi oppression during World War II. They were both Christians and they were leading a student resistance movement. And at the risk of their lives, they would pass out leaflets highlighting what the Nazi regime was actually doing around the world. On one particular day, as they were distributing these leaflets, a janitor happened to notice Sophie, the sister, shove a stack of leaflets off of a staircase onto the floor below. She was doing it so students would pick it up. And a janitor happened to notice her, and so he reported her to the Gestapo. They were eventually brought in. It's a true story. After days and nights of interrogations, Sophie and her brother and several others were found guilty. In the movie, there's a particular court scene that has always stuck with me. As Sophie and her brother are standing up to to kind of give their final appeal, their dad breaks in, tries to stop it, tries to speak up on their behalf. The judge orders him out, and as he's leaving, he yells out, There is a higher justice. Here, this judge sits there, he berates them, he belittles them, he calls them every name imaginable. But as Sophie stands there before him and before military officers and everyone else in the room, The last words, at least in the movie, that she speaks before them is, you, she says to the judge, you will soon be standing where we stand now. In other words, it may look like you're winning, may look like evil's winning, but there's coming a day when you will be put on trial. You won't always be the judge. You're going to be the defendant. You're going to have to give an answer for the evil that's done right now. 
Nobody else may see it right now, but that day is coming. Justice may be delayed, but it's on its way. This is crucial for our faith. In our day, many people don't like to think about God's final judgment. I suppose we're not much different than any other age in that sense. Even for some Christians, though, it makes us feel uncomfortable. It's not the picture of God that we're used to. It doesn't seem very encouraging. The idea of a just judge who one day will pour out his wrath on sin. But Ecclesiastes reminds us we need the whole counsel of God. And without this particular truth, we run the risk of being disillusioned in our faith. If God won't bring every sin to account on the last day, how do we remain faithful in a world that's unjust? If this life is all there is, then the evils of this world will lead us to become fearful or anxious or angry or just to quit in despair. But you see, it's God's final judgment that actually helps us to remain faithful. We don't have to be fearful or anxious when people oppose us for our faith because we know God will deal with our enemies in the end. We can even pray for them and love them and share the gospel with them. We don't have to finally deal with them. Justice isn't up to us. We don't have to question God's goodness when evil goes unpunished. We know that ultimately no one is getting away with anything. There is no sin that will go unpunished. We don't have to make things right in our own strength because we know God will set things right. Yes, his final judgment is humbling and sobering. But for the Christian, it's like a pillar that holds up our faith. This is actually one of the keys to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole. Corey mentioned this when we began this series, but this book really only makes sense in light of the totality of the book. If you look at the final verses of the book, it says this, and we we already read these. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Okay, in other words, I've made this quest for wisdom and here's here's finally what I've come to fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, things that nobody sees with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is good news for God's people. Even when we can't make sense of what we see around us, Ecclesiastes reminds us there is a higher justice. For those who walk in the fear of the Lord, this is steel for our faith in a world that seems unfair. Regardless of what we see, regardless of what we feel, we can entrust ourselves to the one who is perfectly just. Sophie and Hans Scholl, the the students I mentioned earlier, were actually found guilty. That day they were taken and executed. They were actually beheaded. It's reported that Sophie's final words were this, God, you are my refuge into eternity. For those who belong to Jesus Christ, that's the kind of confidence we can have as we remember God's final and future judgment. We no longer have to dread his judgment because our sins have already been judged. 
If you belong to Jesus Christ, His death on the cross was the judgment that you deserved. And God puts that to your account. Our plea before God on the last day will not be that we are innocent. It will not be that we are good enough. The wicked on the last day, I promise you, will not be yelling for justice. They will be yelling for mercy. Our plea on the last day will be that someone else has taken the judgment that we deserved. And that someone is Jesus. And this is all free by the grace of God. If you're here right now and you're not trusting in that, if you're not trusting in the fact that Jesus Christ died in your place to save you from your sins, let me just ask you then, what what will be your plea on the last day? It won't be enough to point to the injustice in the world. Because it's not just out there. Injustice is also in here. Each of us have sinned. Ecclesiastes 7.20, we, we saw last week or two weeks ago. There isn't a righteous man on earth who never sins. We could take Paul's version, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, then the final judgment is not a comforting thought for you. Or it shouldn't be. The good news is is that it can be. The final judgment, instead of facing the final judgment apart from Christ, you can put your trust in Him today and have all of your sins forgiven, even right now. And if you've never done that, I I would invite you to do it now, not to wait. To turn from your sin and say, God, I I don't want to stand before you on the last day in and of myself I'm looking to Jesus alone as the one who took the payment for my sin. If you have questions about that, I would love to talk with you. Get anybody else in here and pull them aside and ask them what it means to trust in Jesus, to have your sins removed and to stand on the last day with no condemnation and no fear. So for all of us, that's, that's the first way we live amid earthly injustice. We remain faithful in light of God's final judgment. This leads to the second point. We live wisely amid earthly injustice by receiving God's gifts with joy. Now this is quite a contrast here. It, we, we, re, we remain faithful In light of injustice, by receiving God's gifts with joy. Look at verse 15 here. Maybe as we were reading this, you thought, where in the world did that come from? How did the preacher arrive at this? He says, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. I mean... If we're honest, this at first sounds out of place. You're just talking about the wicked prospering, the righteous sometimes suffer. How do you have joy? Right, but think about this. This is actually a result of the first point. If you trust that God will set things right in the end, and you realize that you and I deserve His judgment, but by grace, 
we don't receive his condemnation. Right? Then no longer will you look at the world for ultimate satisfaction and perfect justice. Okay, you won't demand justice from a broken and sinful world. Doesn't mean there aren't difficult questions to answer. It doesn't mean we look out and we're unaffected by what we see. But ultimately, we, we realize we don't have to set things right. right. The clenched fist becomes the open hand. And we're able to receive God's gifts with joy because they're gifts of grace. Your salvation, this church family, your physical health, even the little joys of life. Notice the preacher here, he mentions eating and drinking. All of life then is a gift if you're not looking to squeeze out of life perfect justice in this age. You realize all you have is a gift. The leaves changing in the fall. You're able to rejoice in that even in an unjust world. And I hope you can see from the context here, the preacher is not saying eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. He's not saying the world's unjust and uh, we're all going to face the judgment, so just live it up while you can. No, these are the words of someone who knows that every good thing he receives is free and undeserved. He commends joy because he stopped expecting life to deliver what it was never meant to deliver. At least life apart from God. Okay, again, it's not that he doesn't care about injustice in the world. We could go to other parts of Scripture where we're told to speak up for the vulnerable and oppressed. Right? But true wisdom teaches us that we don't have to despair or lose our faith when things don't go as expected or when it seems unfair. God hasn't given us the task of setting the world right. We participate in what he's doing, but it's ultimately his job. And we rest in the fact that His justice will prevail on the last day. Hey, at times, Ecclesiastes, as you're reading through here, it can sound depressing. But when we read it as a whole like this, we realize there's joy to be had even in a broken and unjust world. Our limits are good for us. God made us to thrive as dependent creatures, not as little gods who are calling the shots. We were made to depend on him. We can live wisely in a world of earthly injustice. Number three, we not only rejoice in his gifts with joy, we not only look to the final judgment, but we rely on God's wisdom instead of our own. We rely on God's wisdom instead of our own. We've, we've sung about that this morning. Right, this chapter begins by talking about the benefits of wisdom. We skipped over that earlier. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the, and the hardness of his face is changed. There's benefits to wisdom. It can help us navigate a difficult world. But this chapter ends with highlighting the, the limits of wisdom. Look at, the, look at the final verse here in chapter 8. Lest we think, if I could just get wise enough, I could get all this figured out. 
He says, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. If your goal is to figure out God's ways, then Ecclesiastes reminds you that you're out of your league. This is above your pay grade. It's above mine. God's wisdom is infinite and perfect. Ours is limited and stained by sin. Sometimes non-Christians will say they don't believe in God because they don't understand how a good God could cause suffering. How could he allow this? Sometimes as Christians even, we can entertain those thoughts. But isn't it possible that an all-wise God has purposes that we can't figure out. I mean, think about it here. I have trouble operating a Zoom call, okay? And those of you who know me, that's not an exaggeration, right? The elders can um, tell you about that. Who am I to dictate to God how to run a universe? Who are you? How can the wicked claim that he's unjust Right? Isn't it possible in the realm of things that we don't know that God has greater purposes than we ever realized? His ways are mysterious, but ultimately they are good and right, even when they don't make sense to us, which is often. In fact, God's word teaches us that he intentionally works to undermine human wisdom. It's not a bug, it's a feature. He's designed it this way. Hey, but this shouldn't surprise us too much when we consider how God chose to redeem his people through the cross. The very thing that human wisdom says is weak and shameful, God uses to put his wisdom and power on display. First Corinthians one, the apostle Paul tells us that this message of Christ crucified is, quote, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Everyone thinks it's a bad plan in and of themselves. But to those who are called, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you're bothered by the injustice that you see around you, not only around the world, but even in your own life. God, why are you doing this? Recall that God sent his own son, Jesus, the only truly righteous person that ever lived to suffer unjustly on your behalf. How's that for justice? Friends, we we can't fully comprehend God's wisdom. We can't make sense of all of his ways with our finite minds. But the message of Ecclesiastes and the message of Scripture as a whole is that we can trust Him. And if we ever start to doubt this, again, we just simply need to look at the cross. God is not arbitrarily doing things because He doesn't care. He sent His own Son to put His wisdom and justice on full display. Let's close by hearing and echoing the words of the Apostle Paul at the end of Romans 11. After laying out the depths, or excuse me, after laying out the heights and depths of the gospel, Paul says this, Oh, the depths 
of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we confess that our wisdom is limited. We confess that we can't fully find out your ways. We confess that we are perplexed sometimes at why you do certain things and why you do them at certain times. But ultimately, we look this morning for answers not to our own reason, not to our own observations, but to the cross of Jesus Christ, where justice and wisdom are put on display. We thank you that we can receive your grace as a gift, not as something we earn, not because we've finished a quest for wisdom, but because you have revealed it in the person of your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.